at first didn't think that I could have PTSD because besides being hospitalized, I couldn't really grab on to one traumatizing event. And even then, I still didn't feel like the hospital was all that traumatizing. So I do think that I very much so was kind of experiencing the effects of a lifetime of, of chronic illness a lifetime of having goals taken away. Um, and then as I as I came to talk with my therapist more about it, realizing that like, even when I voluntarily undergo a procedure, um, like I get frequent steroid injections in my um, spine, lower back and, and sacroiliac joints um, and radiofrequency ablation. And they're, as far as I'm concerned, they feel like pretty minor routine procedures at this point. I, I go to an outpatient hospital, they give me the IV, I go under light sedation, they inject me, I'm a little sore, I go home, you know, shortly thereafter and kind of sleep it off. It's, it doesn't feel like a big deal. But to the body, even if I'm voluntarily undergoing these things, it's a trauma to the body. My body is constantly being assaulted by, by blood work, by the injections I give myself, by, you know, the 20 something pills I take every day. Like, no matter how much I tell myself, like, this is fine, you've got this, the body's experiencing just this constant trauma. And, and that's where I think the, the PTSD kind of arises from. And for me, the, the hospitalization was kind of where I, I couldn't kid myself anymore. And it was just that total loss of control. Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. Today, I talked to Heather about developing post-traumatic stress symptoms after the medical experiences related to our chronic illnesses. What we talk about is different than what most people think of when we talk about traumatic stress responses, or even what is officially diagnosable according to the DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is relied upon for making psychiatric diagnoses. We're going to be talking about some things that can be very upsetting or triggering for people. We talk about specific medical situations, trauma therapy, and other events with the potential to lead to PTSD. So if you're feeling like you're not up to listening to this one, by all means, turn me off and take care of yourself. But traumatic medical experiences are something that don't get much attention. So I hope that if this is something you've experienced and we're feeling like it might not be valid because no one talks about it. I promise you this is a thing. Uh, there's not a lot out there about medical trauma, but I will link to some trauma resources in the show notes. 
Experiencing post-traumatic stress is a normal physiological reaction to experiencing or witnessing something awful. Racing heart, shaky hands, feeling sweaty, afraid, and nervous, it's all part of that built-in fight-or-flight response we all have. Avoiding similar situations, having nightmares, flashbacks, and feeling nervous in situations that remind you of what happened is normal. Usually, these symptoms will subside within a few days of the event, but when they go on for much longer and affect your everyday life is when you start to get into post-traumatic stress disorder territory. The current theory is that this can develop as a result of your brain storing those memories in a different way and to some extent your body and brain getting stuck in that fight or flight feedback loop. PTSD occurs as a response to a major traumatic event, something that's happened in the past, but when you're living with chronic illness, you may develop PTSD-like symptoms without a major traumatic event that you can put your finger on. Like Heather pointed out in that opening clip, for those of us who live inside bodies under constant assault from treatments, procedures, and even our own immune systems, it can be hard to teach our bodies and our brains that we're safe and, and that fight or flight stuff is unnecessary. I think we'd both say after lots of therapy, we're in much better shape than we used to be, but receiving new diagnoses, going into doctor's appointments, tests, or dealing with medical related stuff can still all be incredibly triggering. In The Evil Hours, a biography of post-traumatic stress disorder, David J. Morris describes the current body of research as remarkably chaotic. And he examines his own experience, the conditions, history, and various treatments that have been studied in the book. What little we do know about post-traumatic stress comes from research done by the Bureau of Veterans Affairs, or the VA, here in the United States. PTSD is most often associated with combat veterans because veterans are the reason it's recognized as a condition at all. Trauma-related psychiatric illness has been reported in some way throughout much of recorded history, though most of it in the realm of the arts and philosophy. It wasn't really medicalized until the world wars of the 20th century. Modern history of trauma usually begins with reports from the American Civil War in the 1860s, though at that time, patients were usually regarded as malingerers or cowards. The condition took many different names over the years, including shell shock and soldier's heart, which was a cluster of symptoms retrospectively understood to encompass a group of disorders that not only included what we now know as PTSD, but autonomic dysfunction and POTS as well. Formed in 1967, an activist group called the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, or the VVAW, began organizing the first informal support groups for combat veterans in 1970. These rap groups provided a space to discuss what they'd experienced during the war, their disillusionment, and their negative experiences after returning home to a society that was largely hostile or indifferent to what they'd been through. They worked together with psychiatrists to lobby for the conditions officially recognized in the DSM-3 in 1980. The diagnostic criteria has been revised over the years to reflect ongoing research, but still not recognized by the DSM are things like complex PTSD or continuous traumatic stress. Complex PTSD occurs in people who have been repeatedly traumatized with experiences like childhood abuse, maltreatment by a caretaker, or domestic violence. With continuous traumatic stress, people encounter traumatic experiences regularly as a part of their community or occupation, like in the case of emergency first responders, funeral professionals, and even social workers, doctors, and nurses. We still don't know why some people develop PTSD and some don't. 
two people can experience the exact same thing with two different responses. It is violation of bodily integrity and a sense of powerlessness that are thought to most likely lead to long-term post-traumatic stress response. It is also thought that the interpersonal nature of a trauma is what makes something more or less likely to provoke PTSD in a person. For example, PTSD rates among combat veterans who are often armed and trained for combat situations usually hovers around 13 to 15% compared with around 50% for survivors of rape. In contrast, survivors of traumatic events like accidents and natural disasters, events that could be considered as quote-unquote acts of God, are among the lowest. Medical PTSD has been studied in ICU patients, heart patients, cancer and HIV patients, and even in women who have experienced traumatic childbirth. In most cases, it is the singular event of receiving the diagnosis or having the heart attack that has been studied. It's much easier to track an event like that and document its direct fallout than it is to study the effect of prolonged exposure or repeated medical events like we experience with chronic illness. And it's a shame because an awful lot of the chronically ill people that I've talked to have some experience with this. The effect of trauma is cumulative. So having traumatic experiences in other areas of your life in combination with what's experienced over the course of a chronic health problem can be extra complicated. In today's bonus episode, we talk a bit about EMDR and some of the other therapies that have been studied as treatments for PTSD. In both this episode and the bonus episode, we do mention a few Grey's Anatomy spoilers, although nothing from this current season. Find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. And if you can, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. You can find Heather on Instagram at H-A-S-P-E-L-L and on Twitter at H-C-O-R-I-N-I. Follow her for her thoughts and experiences with living the chronic life. This is one of the hardest episodes that I've produced so far. I am really excited to put it out because I think that this is something that a lot of people deal with, but I'm also super glad that I can take a break from thinking about all of this stuff for a little while. There will definitely be more to come about medical traumas, but we're going to talk about some other stuff in the meantime to give my poor brain a break. If you're dealing with PTSD of any kind, feel ready to talk about it and might consider being on the show. Please shoot me an email at insicknesspod at gmail.com. I may not get back to you right away, but this is definitely something worth talking about. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I think the way that my illness started is a big part of why I kind of had the traumatic responses that I did more recently. Um, I've been chronically ill as long as I can remember. I started having joint pain that was really noticeable when I was, you know, 10, 11, maybe had other symptoms, went to doctors and, you know, like so many people couldn't get a diagnosis. Uh, so spent a lot of years doing physical therapy and things like that, um, you know, but new symptoms sort of kept cropping up. And, and eventually I, I went to an allergist when I was covered from head to toe with sort of full body hives. 
Um, and we couldn't quite figure out what that was. Did the full round of allergy testing? And he said, no, there's, you're not allergic to anything at all. It's, it's gotta be autoimmune. Um, so he sort of thought, um, at that time it was lupus, uh, sent me to a, a rheumatologist who, you know, even though I, I, I had a lot of negative blood work and it wasn't totally clear what was going on, um, with sort of the joint pain and rashes and, and things like that. She, she, she knew there was some sort of autoimmune thing going on and started treatment immediately. So that was, that was wonderful that, that she did that. So I started, um, you know, on treatments for what we were calling at that time, juvenile arthritis, lupus crossover. Um, and, uh, sort of, you know, that was right around the time I was leaving for college that I was sort of starting to do my own injections and things like that. And, and so I kind of developed this just like very like independent attitude about it. I didn't really let my parents help a whole lot. I really took pretty aggressive control over, um, researching all the possibilities since we weren't entirely sure what was wrong with me and, and figuring out how to, you know, just manage this illness while starting college. And, um, you know, I'd been living with sort of the chronic pain for as long as I could remember. So I wasn't, it was just kind of learning how to manage the logistics of being chronically ill. Um, so I went off to college and sort of continued to, um, you know, deal with, deal with the illness. You know, I remember things like, you know, riding the bus to go get infusions at the hospital and then going back to my sorority house and kind of trying to um, not let anyone see how drained I was from the treatments or the illness itself, yeah. you know, just really kind of trying to, to fit in. And that was really important to me at that age, you know, being. Yeah. Did your sorority sisters know that you were having health problems at all? Or did you like totally hide that from them? I totally hid it up first. And the story of how I sort of came to, to share it was actually kind of a cool one. I, not too long after I had first joined the sorority, I noticed another girl had sort of the wrap that's on the arm that they put on the arm after the infusion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't remember how, but I think I just sort of asked her like, Hey, what's up? You got something going on? And turned out she had Crohn's. Uh, oh wow! And she similarly didn't really talk to anyone about it. And um, you know, we're we're still you know the greatest of friends. And so I, I I opened up to her about it. And in the sorority, I definitely had a group of friends who who came to know about what was going on. You know, I <laughs> my roommates had to know why I had to have a little mini fridge with medication in it, you know, and then uh, got used to me injecting myself before we went out to the bars or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, so definitely started to open up to them about it. But even then it was, it was a lot of just like joking about the things about it that, that were awkward or funny, like, you know, giving myself injections or, things like that. Um, I mean, there were definitely moments that were more serious. I know I like got the flu a few times and I, my roommates found me passed out in the bathroom cause I was so degraded and had to like take me to the ER. So they saw some of the harder stuff as well, but I, I was very invested in sort of being tough and not letting, not letting the, this illness affect how I lived my life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just kind of how I dealt with it for a very long time. So I ended up, um, you know, and, and, and we never really got great, great control over my illness. You know, I'm very, you know, we, we've come to call it Stills disease now, systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis. I know you had Kirsten on who, who talked a bit about that. That's mm-hmm. still, we're not sure that that's the best fit. Um, cause I'm very non-standard. Um, so I really never responded particularly well to any medications. So sort of despite trying to be tough, it, it just continued to progress. Um, and I just kind of kept trying to work harder to hide it or control it. Or, you know, I thought I could have a good attitude or just, right. I thought I could outthink it. Yeah. And uh, I ended up applying to law school. Um you know, wasn't going to let this hold me back at all and went went to law school and sort of continued to just really push through it <laughs> as much as I could. And uh, I don't know how, but, you know, I managed to sort of get through law school, pass the bar, get a job at a big law firm, all while keeping this pretty hidden. You know, I, I, I mean, my friends certainly knew about it, but I just would work kind of twice as hard in the moments when I felt better to make up for Mm. however behind I got, you know, when I had to miss class or or things like that because of flaring up. So that's how I'd lived most of my life dealing with it. Um, And when I was in law school, I met my now husband, who was also in law school. And uh, so we, we moved to Los Angeles together. And I started, you know, after law school, and I started a very stressful job um, as a litigator at a large law firm. Um, and that was, you know, that was really exciting and I, and I, I really enjoyed it, you know, but it was a lot of long hours. I didn't tell my bosses or my coworkers about my health condition at all. Didn't want to be perceived as weak or anything like that. I, I, you know, I, I, I know, I know you've talked about that. A number of people have talked about that on the podcast, you know, yeah, it's fairly common. Um, so, you know, I just, but I would work these, you know, really, horrifically long days and all nighters. And it just, you know, it was, it was piling up. Um, and you know, we still hadn't really found anything to prevent my illness from getting worse. It was definitely just sort of steadily progressing. Um, so it was getting harder and harder for me to live a seemingly normal life. (laughs) Yeah. When my husband and I got married, I took about a month off work. Um, and you know, as, as a lawyer, there wasn't really someone who could particularly cover for me because, you know, I sort of was in charge of the trajectory of the cases that I was working on. And so when I was out, you know, I set things up to kind of be okay while I was gone, but it ended up just being the busiest work couple of months of my life when I came back after the wedding. Um, And so I, uh, you know, just continued to work and work and work and work. Um, and I ended up so sick that I, I had to take some time off work. <laughs> and that's when I kind of had to reevaluate what I was doing. And I was just, you know, at the time, just starting to panic. Like, I can't hide this anymore. What's going to happen? You know, what if I, I don't want clients to find out? I don't want opposing counsel to find out. I don't want my bosses to find out. But, you know, I sort of had to, to reevaluate how I was doing things. So I took a few weeks off work. I um, mean, came back at sort of a reduced schedule where I would have a, a slightly lower caseload. Um, of course, that didn't really do much to alleviate the stress of being an attorney, which is just an inherently stressful job. And when you say uh, litigator, like, 
I just instantly think of Cher's dad and Clueless and him just yelling all the time. So I can imagine uh, very stressful. Yeah. And, and of course, it's not it's not nearly as dramatic as, <laughs> as TV or movies and make it sound like I certainly was in court every now and then. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of what I did was was sit in an office um, doing a lot of reading, a lot of writing. Um, a lot of email sending, you know, that was kind of the majority of it. So it was kind of these long hours sitting at this desk. You know, I remember mm. my, my like office light would like turn off. It was an automatic light <laughs> and it would turn off because I like hadn't moved. Oh yeah. I've had offices like yeah. that. It's weird. Yeah. And that sort of would, would cue to me like, oh wow. Like, and, and so I'd, I'd kind of get up and move. And then I, the way I had learned to cope with the pain was to just, I learned to block it out. Yeah. But the second that I would sort of come out of the zone of, you know, I'd be writing some some brief and I'd come out of it and, and suddenly feel it all at once. It would just like hit me. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like I I heard yeah, it. I'm familiar with that feeling. Yeah. And then I'd realize like, oh, my gosh, I haven't gone to the bathroom in like, you know, six hours and like, you know, just all the all the physical needs would like kind of come in at once. So I, I, I kind of found a way to get in the zone and, and, and escape my body. That's how I had learned to cope. That's how I done the long night studying and gotten to where I'd gotten. But I just, you know, I kept getting sicker and, and my doctors kept saying like, you know, how many hours are you working? That's not helping you. You know, stress is, is definitely something that, that makes any sort of autoimmune disease worse. And I was doing, you know, the worst possible things I could do. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, we tried to cut my caseload. Um, but just the nature of, of laws you know, there, there are a lot of emergencies and sort of urgent questions and, and you are kind of always on call. So I never could really um, build in the kind of rest that I that I truly needed mm-hmm. in order to maintain my health. So, you know, we kept decreasing my, my hours and I kept having to disclose more and more information about my condition to my bosses. And that that was just that was really, really hard. And that was kind of just, it felt like the walls were kind of crumbling, crumbling around me. Um, so I ended up, you know, I took a number of, of brief leaves of absence. They'd be, you know, two weeks, three weeks to kind of recover when I was in a flare. You know, I'd take a bunch of steroids and, and kind of get my body back under control as best as I could and then kind of dive back in or, or I'd work from, you know, luckily the being a lawyer did allow me some flexibility. You know, I was largely in control of my own schedule. So I, I was able to work from home a lot. And I sort of tried, you know, all, all of all of the options to keep working. Um, and it just, it wasn't working. It wasn't enough. Um, so I, I, I was on a leave of absence. And it was my longest one. Yet I was about a month or two into it when sort of the event that kind of triggered um, the sort of medical PTSD kind of occurred. I am, um, it was my 29th birthday and, uh, actually some of my sorority sisters flew down to, to visit me in Los Angeles. And we, I uh, went to Disneyland, which is my favorite place. <laughs> and, uh, of course they were so excited to be in Disneyland that they kind of wanted to do everything and run all around. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I was using a cane at that point, um, and, you know, was kind of trying to keep up with them as best as I could. Um, and we were running around and, and had an absolutely wonderful time. Um, and the next day, um, my friends were still staying with me and I woke up and I had like a 104 degree fever, oh, wow. you know, something like that. 
Um, and uh, I was like, eh, it's fine. You know, I, I definitely had dealt with passing fevers, but it, it didn't go away. It kept getting worse over the course of the weekend. And um, I, I, I became concerned that, you know, being on immunosuppressants, maybe I'd pick something up at Disneyland, um, a bug or something, you know, but I really didn't want to have to like go to the ER or anything like that. I, I just sort of thought, oh, you know, we'll take care of it at home. I'll tough it out. Same kind of mentality. Um, I think the fever got up to 105 and I knew I had to go in and I was just totally incoherent. So um, we went into my, my, my husband took me to the ER and um, I ended up being in the hospital for about two weeks. Um, during that hospitalization, you know, which was, it was actually the first time I'd, I'd actually been admitted I'd been to the ER before that for sort of minor things, but I'd never sort of had that experience of being in the hospital for an extended period. And, um, you know, at the time, I would have said that, you know, it was fine. I've got this. You know, I've been sick. This is fine. Everything's okay. Um, and I and I was very, very calm on the outside to, to everyone else while they ran sort of a battery of tests. They really couldn't find any infectious causes. I mean, they, they, I met with every kind of specialist. I mean, they, they mri everything, you know, from my brain to <laughs> every organ. I had um, bronchoscopies to, you know, they, they were really searching for, for any explanation because the, the fevers were persisting. I was in a lot of pain in, in my joints. I was having, you know, a lot of rashes everywhere. So just sort of all of the, the hallmarks of a, a pretty severe flare-up. Um, and that's what they ended up concluding it was, was just a a very severe flare-up of my condition. And it was around that time that they started to call it Stills disease or systemic juvenile arthritis because of sort of the fever component, mm-hmm. um, which ended up, it ended up persisting quite a bit after I, I left the hospital. Um, they actually sent me home once after ruling out serious infection and... Um, I ended up with such a high fever that I ended up right back in the hospital. So mm. they were just having a really hard time getting my body to calm down. I was on very, very high doses of steroids. But eventually we were sort of able to get me stable enough to sort of go home. Um, and I was on, you know, and, and I guess that's what's odd is nothing stood out as being particularly traumatic about that experience. Mm-hmm. At the time there was, there was, you know, it it's, was sort of like, okay, this was just another flare up. It was kind of worse maybe than, than the ones you'd experienced before. Um, but everything kind of seemed okay. And I, I didn't really, um, I don't think I really recognized that I was sort of experiencing a trauma. Um, and I was still just so concerned with getting better and getting back to work. That's, that's all I wanted. I wanted to get back to work. I wanted to be normal. I wanted, <laughs> wanted to have kids. I wanted to you know, to just overcome this bump in the road. Um, but unfortunately, it just never got better. So I, I went home on very high doses of steroids, which, you know, still to this day, I'm in the process of weaning down from. So this was this was uh, two years ago oh, wow. that I was hospitalized. So it's been quite a process to deal with that. Um, but I was on such a high amount of steroids at that time that I just was not mentally there. Yeah. I was just like, couldn't focus. I was in a haze (laughs) and, um, you know, moody, not sleeping. You know, I would go days without sleeping because the steroids were creating so much insomnia. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then of course that would just make me even, even less present. I, I, and that was, that was one of the scariest things for me was just feeling like I was completely losing my mind. Yeah. You know, I really did myself on being kind of very together and with it kind of person. Like, you know, I can handle things in a very logical, <laughs> reasonable way. And I just, I, I couldn't think straight. I couldn't hold a conversation. I couldn't, I couldn't follow a movie. I watched TV with subtitles because I couldn't, I couldn't follow a 30 minute TV show without, you know, being able to kind of have have the help of the subtitles to process what was happening. So it, that was just kind of this gradually terrifying thing. And all I wanted was to go back to like being this, you know, lawyer person that I saw myself as. Um, and I was just determined to do that. And no matter, you know, I, tried, I did everything. I, I rested. I was doing physical therapy and acupuncture I was on, you know, I, I had at this point failed every medication option that was available for, you know, we sort of tried everything that that's out there for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and, and all of that. And, and nothing was, was working besides really the steroids, but even that the steroids were causing so many side effects that, you know, that that's obviously not a a good long-term strategy. So um, I had to, uh, you know, I'd been out of work for enough time where I had to apply for long-term disability. And I think this is where it really started to hit me that I wasn't getting better. I wasn't going back. And so I, I, I was having nightmares about being in the hospital. And they, you know, again, like nothing happened in the hospital that was particularly traumatizing, but I would have these nightmares of like being brought up from the ER into, into my room where when they were admitting me, having them change my IVs, um, be getting my, some of my MRIs, which I I had, I'd had a million MRIs before that. Um, I thought I'd done everything. I didn't think anything could phase me, but I was having these nightmares about, my time in the hospital and it was these very specific sort of vivid memories and at the same time the the prednisone was just creating all of this you know anxiety I would just I would pace in circles around my house I would like kind of try to rearrange things <laughs> like it, it, I, you know if the pillows weren't in the right place I would just like freak out I mean I, w- I was not pleasant to be around I was just so high strung um I was so tense. I was so anxious. And I, again, I, I really just kind of chalked it all up to the steroids. Mm-hmm. But I was having those nightmares. And it, it, I think, you know, at the time I, I, I did, I was seeing a therapist, luckily. Already I'd been seeing her for, since I kind of started to cut my hours at work, I had started to see her. I was so lucky when I when I first cut my hours. Um, there was another coworker of mine who um, had MS. And, you know, she wasn't out about it at work, um, but, a, you know, a friend sort of connected us and, and we chatted and she sort of explained what she'd gone through and she recommended a specific therapist who, who had experience and interest in sort of helping people with, with illnesses. That's and, awesome. That's like yeah. so invaluable. It was like the holy grail because, yeah. like, I mean, she, she really has had helped me so much you know we we dealt with sort of the emotional aspect of having to to understand that cutting my hours at work you know wasn't a failing on my part and sort of releasing some of this sense of control that I had over the illness but she also because of sort of her interest in in chronic illness and things like that 
we were able to do things like different meditations to help with pain management. So it's, it's, she, she's been wonderful. So I, I was already seeing someone who really was familiar with chronic illness issues, but like, I wasn't being honest with her. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I wasn't telling her about the nightmares because this whole like mentality I had of like, Oh yeah, like I was in the hospital. It was fine. I'm fine. I've got this. I was still trying to keep that facade up and, and even with her, um, but you know, the, these like psychological effects just became increasingly, um, I guess disabling. I mean, I was already very housebound because of my physical condition at that time. Um, and that, and that was of course, you know, in itself, like traumatizing and upsetting, but there was something about like my experience in the hospital that I just, I couldn't shake. And, and the way that it kind of came out in the dreams, you know, in the nightmares I was having, kind of evidence that. And so as I started to deal with sort of the paperwork involved in applying for long-term disability and social security disability, um, I, it just became totally clear that something wasn't right. Like I would have these like panic attacks whenever, um, a piece of paper would come in the mail from like social security or, um, my disability provider, or if I saw that like the long-term disability provider that I had through work was calling, like I would avoid it. (laughs) Yeah. I am familiar with that. (laughs) Oh yeah. And so, you know, it, it was not, you know, I, I, I could tell I wasn't okay. I remember in particular, um, you know, I, I ended up getting approved for long-term disability very quickly and easily, thank goodness, and, and social security disability as well. Like, I was really lucky that I didn't have to go through, like, a lengthy appeal process. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was an aspect of my long-term disability that needed adjusting, and so um, I did end up having to do some some appeals, and my husband kind of checked in with me. He's like, hey, you know, what's going on with this? Like, what's the status? And I just, like, broke down and had this just massive panic attack in front of him. And he was just like, whoa, like, what's going on here? And and I, um, as he and I talked about it afterwards, I agreed to kind of share with my, my therapist a little bit more honestly about the severity of the symptoms that I was experiencing. You know, the way they were preventing me from doing the things that I needed to do. Mm-hmm. It was just like a total paralysis and... Um, you know, there was a lot of social anxiety that I was started to experience. And it just, it felt like it was everything coming together. And so I shared with my therapist about the nightmares and things like that. And, um, and, you know, she, she's not a, a psychiatrist, you know, she's a, a, you know, primarily cognitive behavioral therapy therapist. Um, so she didn't, you know, jump out and say, Oh, yeah, this is PTSD. But, um, you know, we started to, to really talk about, how, you know, the hospital, my experience in the hospital was traumatic for me. Um, and I started to, you know, look into PTSD and medical PTSD particularly. And it just, the symptoms were, you know, it was exactly what I was experiencing. And and I hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me <laughs> how both the, like, the long-term effect of, like, going through a chronic illness can kind of create that kind of trauma. Mm-hmm as well as like an acute, you know, hospitalization or an accident or something like that. Right. And in the case of medical PTSD, 
like that acute major event is really the thing that's been studied. Like there's not a whole lot of work that's been done looking at, you know, chronic exposure to trauma over time. I mean, even like just general PTSD, take the medical stuff out of it, you know, there's complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the kind of like chronic exposure to trauma. And that doesn't even, as far as the DSM or your insurance company is concerned, that doesn't actually exist. So if it doesn't exist in general, they can't even study it like in a medical setting. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I think, I think I, I at first didn't think that I could have PTSD because I, I couldn't, besides being hospitalized, I couldn't really grab on to one traumatizing event. And right. even then, I still didn't feel like the hospital was all that traumatizing. I think, so I do think that I very much so was kind of experiencing the effects of, of a lifetime of, of chronic illness, mm-hmm. of a lifetime of, of having goals taken away. Um, and then as I, as I came to, to talk with my therapist more about it, realizing that like, even when I voluntarily undergo a procedure, um, like I get frequent steroid injections in my, um, spine, lower back and, and sacroiliac joints, um, and radiofrequency ablation. And they're, they're, as far as I'm concerned, they feel like pretty minor routine procedures at this point. I, mm-hmm. I go to an outpatient hospital, they give me the IV, I go under light sedation, they inject me, I'm a little sore, I go home, you know, shortly thereafter and kind of sleep it off. It's, it doesn't feel like a big deal. Right. But what we, you know, but to the body, it's, even if I'm voluntarily undergoing these things, it's, it's, it's a trauma to the body. My body is constantly being assaulted by, by blood work, by the injections I give myself, by, you know, the 20 something pills I take every day. Like that's not, no matter how much I tell myself, like, this is fine. You've got this, the Mm -hmm. body's experiencing just this constant trauma. And, and that's, you know, where I think the, the PTSD kind of arises from. And and, and for me, the the hospitalization was kind of where I, I, I had to, I couldn't, kid myself anymore and it was that total loss of control well and that's the thing that comes up over and over again in uh writing about ptsd is uh, like a sense of powerlessness helplessness uh loss of control disempowerment like that's what they think is really the driving force behind developing a post-traumatic stress response um a lot they think that the the reason behind that at least one of the reasons behind that is like a sense of like not feeling in control of your body and your situation. Oh, uh, and that makes perfect sense to me because yeah. I think, and that, and that's why I think like the way that I had the coping mechanisms I developed to push through um, my illness as, as, as a younger person contributed or, or kind of set me up <laughs> a bit to, to have this happen because I, I really prided myself on feeling like I did have control over something that I couldn't control. (laughs) And so when it caught up to me, um, it was just extraordinarily traumatizing. And when I, and when I had the, the nightmares and the flashbacks and the things like that, the, the reoccurring theme, there were those moments of loss of control. So Mm -hmm. like one of the nightmares that I sort of, you know, there were a few moments from the hospital that really just couldn't escape my mind at that time. And, one of them was like being surrounded by medical, 
you know, nurses and, and, and assistants who were like trying to change some IVs. And it's just like, you know, I'm just passive there lying in this bed. It was, I think it was the middle of the night and, you know, there's all these people around you shuffling around to, I didn't know what was wrong and, you know, I didn't know what was happening and, and I had no control mm-hmm. and I was by myself. Um, and it was the middle of the night. Um, my husband, um, I had, I had sent home because, you know, he, he was, uh, having a lot of work stress at that time. And again, I really prided myself on, on having things under control. So it was like, no, I've got this, come back tomorrow, go get some sleep. Um, but you know, it was that total loss of control that, um, haunted me. Mm-hmm. And I, I really had to start to accept that I was not in control of my illness. And that was kind of where, you know, the healing process started. But it, my therapist and I didn't talk about the hospitalization as a traumatic, you know, really as a traumatic event for me until I want to say it was like at least a year afterwards. Yeah. You know, I, it really took a while. You know, we talked about it, of course, a little bit, but it, it took me a long time to acknowledge it as even having affected me that way because that, that was just to acknowledge that was hard. <laughs> yeah, I definitely understand that. I had a procedure a couple years ago that like really changed everything. I, you know, they were telling me it was going to fix everything. I went under anesthesia. I woke up and my whole life was different, like in a very bad oh. way. Um, and it wasn't until just like this past December, I was supposed to have a colonoscopy and I was supposed to like, and they were kind of freaking out because I have like heart stuff. So they were like, well, we don't want to put you under anesthesia until you get cardiac clearance. And it just turned into this, like, really, I had to jump through all of these hoops and I started freaking out and was like, why is this so stressful? Oh my God, I can't handle this. What's going on? And then I realized like, oh, it's because the last time I went under anesthesia, like it ruined my life. Um, And it wasn't until I was in a situation where I was going to have to kind of re-enter that hospital situation that it even occurred to me that like the last time I was there was incredibly traumatic for me. Right. And I guess that <laughs> that's what's so hard when you have a chronic illness and you experience uh, any kind of medical trauma, whether it's, you know, from sort of the chronic exposure or just a, a, a one-time event is you, you know, I, I'm still at the hospital several days a week. Right. You know, I still undergo procedures quite regularly um, of all different kinds. You know, I've, I've unfortunately been like the worst case scenario uh, in so many ways, you know, with kind of just developing all the side effects and secondary diagnoses possible. I feel like I've got gotten a new serious diagnosis every couple months, the last, you know, since the hospitalization. And um, so it's like continually being re-exposed. Yeah. And in the case of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, one of like the key things to that is re-victimization kind of over and over again. But in medical post-traumatic stress disorder, as it's been studied, one of the situations that they have studied is receiving a serious diagnosis. So they've studied it in cancer patients, HIV patients, heart disease patients, and just receiving a life-threatening or life-changing diagnosis itself can be extremely traumatic. So if you're going through that like every couple of months, like your brain can't even process that. Of course, you know, yeah. 
And and that's actually what started. I I actually think that ended up being one of the more troubling symptoms was I became completely numb. Yeah. Uh, I would sort of be like, oh, yeah, you know, I've got gastroparesis now, so going to start blending all my food. No big (laughs) deal. You know, and it it just kind of became this, like, one thing after another, and and I just kind of, you know, started to experience a lot of, like, disassociation and Mm -hmm. just, you know, absence. You know, I know my my husband really noticed that I just wasn't present. And and I had weaned off a lot of the prednisone at that point. Because again, initially, I, I chalked a lot of it just up to the steroids. Right. Um, but it was as those weaned down to lower levels that I'd been on before that I realized, okay, this isn't, I mean, the steroids certainly contribute, but that wasn't the primary cause. There was something else going on here. Um, and, 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 and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I started to, to look into the the research. And of course, you know, yeah, you see like cancer diagnoses. I saw a lot of talk about patients who'd been in the ICU experiencing Mm -hmm. PTSD because they, um, they almost died. Like they almost died. And one of the things that I actually uh, read about was just, just the the fact that you're not able to sleep normally in the hospital, like that, that, that long-term effect where particularly in the ICU where they really don't let you be for extended period, but constantly having people come into your room, um, and, um, poke at you and disturb you in your sleep, like that, that just really, um, traumatizes your brain and puts it in that, that fight or flight response, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, that's, that's what PTSD is. Your brain is, is sort of stuck in that, that panicked fight or flight mode. Um, and so, you know, I, one of the things that I noticed was the smell of the hand sanitizer (laughs) that the phlebotomist would use when they came into my room, um, was one of my like kind of triggers yeah. for panicking and getting really upset. Well, of course I'm continually still having to get blood drawn and it wasn't for me like the needle itself or anything like that because I was so accustomed to the blood work, but there was something about the particular smell that would kind of create like a panic in me. And I think it was because, you know, I'd be asleep and the phlebotomist would come in and, um, the, I'd smell that and then they'd poke me a bunch of times and, and I have terrible veins and they had to take so many blood cultures when I was hospitalized thinking that I, was dealing with some sort of infection that they couldn't find. And um, so, yeah, that was just one of the, you know, one of those things I was continually being re-exposed to that was bringing my brain back to that, back to that place where, you know, I didn't know what was going on. Part of what I think is so challenging with, with any kind of medical PTSD is like my, you know, my therapist and I did kind of talk through, you know, what's different now than then. And, and, um, but I am not able to entirely convince myself that I am safe now mm-hmm. in the way that someone who either was, you know, in combat, it is now home or, right. or cause you're still, out. you're still inside that same body. That... I'm living it every day. Yeah. And I'm, you know, whether, whether I'm just, you know, at home, but dealing with the pain or taking the medications or dealing with anxiety about new diagnoses or, or actually undergoing procedures, you know, there is that, that continual, um, that, that continual exposure, re-exposure, um, to the things that caused me to experience, um, the trauma in the first place, that loss of control, you know, because for me, it wasn't, you know, I, I've also heard about people developing PTSD after like waking up 
during a surgical procedure from anesthesia. Yeah, that's something like that, which is, yeah, that's terrifying. And that's like a, I don't want to say it's like a one-off thing, but like, I, I think if I felt like something very out of the ordinary like that had happened, it would be easier to tell myself, okay, like what are the odds that that's going to happen twice? Like that's right. not a typical outcome, but you know, I, I think the, the possibility that I could be, um, hospitalized again for a severe flare up or that I'll receive an additional diagnosis or, or anything like that, like that's a very real thing that I have to face every day. And so I think for those of us with chronic illness who are dealing with, you know, a, like a complex medical PTSD, um, you know, it, the, the treatment kind of needs to be adjusted a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely. not just about, you know, cause we did, my therapist and I did start with the sort of, you know, establishing that you're safe now, but, but it was more important to establish that, that, um, that I had tools uh-huh. to cope with it now, you know, it was more about what's different in, in my life now. So that if I receive a new diagnosis, like I, I'm, better equipped to process it or, or, you know, talk with my husband about it or, or deal with it. I, I'm, I have a different mentality and that's, what's different. There's nothing outside of me that is more safe. It's just my ability to, to process it is what had to change my, my, my mindset about it, my feeling of control. I kind of had to, to realize I, I had none. Yeah. <laughs> and that the only thing that I could control was my response and, and that I had no control over, over whether I would ever be able to work again or, or, or anything like that. Um, and, uh, so that kind of along with the EMDR is, has kind of been the, the route we've been taking for me. Which can um, be a double-edged sword. Cause for a while I was on this kind of like hyper, like if I just never get sick again, and never hurt myself again <laughs> and only eat these certain things and make sure that I don't eat these other things that I know I have a problem with. And, you know, like if I can just control all of these Everything. factors, I will be fine and I won't get any worse. And then back in September, I got a stomach bug and was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> I have yeah. no control over anything. No control at all. And that's, yeah. I think that, yeah, that it's, it's such a balance because I, I you know, earlier in my life, I was totally in that mindset. You know, I, I went through phases where I took no medication and had a carefully controlled diet. And, you know, I had times when I was doing all the medication and, you know, I sort of have tried every, had tried every approach. Um, Mm -hmm. but all of them, you know, just feeling like if I, if I could control everything perfectly, then, then I can control the outcome of, of my diseases. And, um, so it's kind of, (laughs) Yeah, that is definitely not true. So it was a sort of a combination of accepting that I had no control over the illness, but finding where I where I could be in control. And right. and I have no control over if if I'm going to get better, if I'm going to get worse, if I'm going to get other diseases, if I'm going to have negative outcomes to my treatments or, you know, bad reactions to new medications. Like I have no control over any of that. And I've had to to really face and accept that to to kind of start to to heal a little bit, but, uh, I do have control over, um, you know, the way that, that these appointments go, the way that these conversations with my doctors happen, you know, I'm not, you know, I feel like I'm in control of my appointments. I feel like I'm in control of my care. I can't control the outcome, but I'm not just like this passive, 
person being thrown around the healthcare system. And, and so becoming my own advocate, at least, has given me enough of a sense of control where I'm not crying hysterically in the car after every appointment because, you know, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Yeah, that's definitely an improvement. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm curious about the nightmares that you had. Yeah. You said you had some like uh, very specific, vivid nightmares of being in the hospital. But did you have any other kinds of nightmares? <sighs> yes, I did. Um, it's actually, <laughs> it's really. I, I actually had one the other day. Um, so it's kind of kind of fascinating. Um, I had a nightmare recently and and I just to kind of start I don't dream a lot Mm -hmm. and and, you know I I do take a a, quite a bit of pain medication um and so I've I've often wondered if that's really impacted it but I I don't feel like I dream very often and so when I I am able to have have and remember sort of a, a dream that has a real like narrative to it that always really stands out to me and unfortunately for the most part those have been either sort of these these flashbacks from the hospital specifically like you know, these, this feeling of me being above my body, looking down on the, the scene as it actually kind of happened or as I remembered it. Um, and then um, this, this more recent one, um, I was sort of terrible. I was, I was in the hospital or, and it wasn't the same hospital I was hospitalized at. It wasn't the hospital that I normally go to, but like, you know, I knew it was a hospital and I think I was there for like a procedure Um, and my husband was there, but for like, whatever reason, like we were split up, um, like he was in a check-in area and I had been brought back to a prep area of some sort. And for whatever reason, um, some other family members were there as well. And what ended up happening in the dream is there was like a shooting in the hospital. Oh God. While I was, um, (laughs) there was that episode of Grey's Anatomy where that Yes, (laughs) that's exactly what it, like I thought about when I woke up, I said, it's like Grey's Anatomy. Uh. Um, but like there was a, a shooter in the hospital um, and I was um, and and in the dream I was running and trying to like find places to hide. So like pretty like just disturbing, violent dream. Mm. Um, and um, after sort of the, you know, sort of continues of, of me trying to hide and hearing gunshots and screaming and things like that, very like sort of trauma in the hospital. Um, and then um, being separated from my husband, which was part of what, I recalled as being traumatic from uh, my hospitalization as well, just like being alone, um, dealing with this scary stuff in the hospital. Um, and it, and, and another part of the dream is I, I ended up finding some of my family afterwards and, and they told me that my husband had been shot. So oh, it's like a very, yeah. And I woke up and like, what, where did that come from? Um, and you know, so I, you know, I actually told, told my husband about the dream and he said, well, I think it's, you know, he, he, he pretty quickly said, I think that, you know, sounds like it's connecting to sort of your, your, your feelings of, of trauma with the hospital. And, mm-hmm. and, and that made a lot of sense to me, you know, just it being this place where you're, you're not in control and you're scared for your life and, um, and feeling alone. And, and, and so I certainly have had other nightmares that, carry those same themes, you know, even though they're not yeah. literal flashbacks to the actual thing I experienced. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm glad that you said that because I was having nightmares for a long time and did not realize that they were connected because they weren't medical in nature. Um, I was just dreaming that either someone was trying to kill me and I was trying to <laughs> escape from them or somebody was chasing me for some reason and I felt like my life was in danger. But it took me forever to be like, oh, maybe this has something to do with... Because I, I, like the medications that I'm on definitely impact whether or not I dream, whether I remember I dream, and then also the nature of my dreams. Like I take Singular for like some of the problems that I have and I had to switch from taking it at night to taking it in the morning because it made my dreams psychedelic. Like that is really the only <laughs> word that I can even think of that even remotely touches the effect that it had on my dreams, they were just so far out and horrific and terrifying and like just really bizarre. Um, so there's, I mean, it's a lot to deal with. Yeah, a lot of factors yeah. coming together. But yeah, I think, you know, anything when you live with chronic illness, you know, you do sort of always feel like your, your life is right. You're constantly trying to outrun some something. Outrun something. And yeah. then at the same time, you know, like, so your brain, it, it's it's understandable. And I've kind of developed a lot more sort of compassion for why um, someone might, you know, their brain might really get stuck in that fight or flight mode, you know, and, and have these sort of panicky dreams where you're running or afraid for your life or mm-hmm. um, so I, yeah, I, you know, I, I feel like whenever I do dream, it tends to have that character to it or whenever I remember my dreams at least. Yeah. And I've had certain painkillers I've tried that have kind of created that similar like psychedelic effect. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not fun. This is not like, and it's exhausting because you wake up and you're like, I feel like I've been running a marathon all night. Yes. And like, you're not getting the, the kind of, the kind of sleep that, you know, (laughs) that you need to be getting. Yeah, for Um, sure. So definitely not fun. Um, part of it. Thank you for listening to In Sickness and In Health. Find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. If you can, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.